broad topic that influences everyone. Treasure that lies in our country. There's actually a possibility to make the change. And include everybody in the transition that we need to make. It's not only a matter of environment, but it's also a matter of people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bioeconomy Matters. This is your host, Hayley Chantar, and we have some positive news for you today. Planet Positivity. Planet Positivity. Planet Positivity. Your positive news about sustainability. Hello everyone, let's celebrate the start of this year with some good news. Today we are exploring three remarkable stories driving positive change across the globe. Let's start with the recipe for transformation in the food system. A recent report called Appetite for Change, unveiled by a coalition of researchers, proposes a groundbreaking solution to curb nitrogen leakage in Europe's food production. Currently, 80% of vital nitrogen ends up polluting our environment due to inefficient farming, retail practices and wastefulness. The report suggests a recipe for change, reducing meat and dairy consumption by half, optimizing fertilizers and manure use, cutting food waste, enhancing wastewater treatment and promoting balanced diets. This holistic approach, involving everyone from farmers to consumers, aims to drastically reduce nitrogen losses, fostering a more sustainable and efficient food system. Now, let's explore the unconventional hero transforming the apparel industry, common milkweed floss. Originating from North America, grasslands, milkweed emerges as an eco-friendly insulation material. Thriving without irrigation or pesticides, this perennial plant offers sustainable insulation comparable to goose down. Moreover, its cultivation aids in reversing monarch butterfly declines, addresses microplastic concerns and resonates with socially conscious consumers seeking ethically sourced apparel. Major brands like Patagonia are already integrating milkweed into their products, marking a significant shift towards sustainable clothing alternatives. Shifting gears to menstrual products, an often overlooked yet impactful arena for sustainability. While disposable pads and tampons contribute to substantial waste, innovative solutions are emerging. Eco-friendly options including organic cotton disposables and reusable products like pads, underwear, cups and discs offer a greener alternative. However, accessibility and cost remain a challenge. That's why the McGill University Menstrual Health Project steps in, bringing these gaps by installing free eco-friendly dispensers across their campus and hosting monthly giveaways of reusable products, promoting eco-conscious menstruation accessible for all. From reimagining fruit production to revolutionizing clothing and menstrual care, these initiatives showcase how small changes can yield significant impacts. Hope you enjoyed the positive news. Let's keep smiling until the next episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bioeconomy Matters. We release podcasts related to bioeconomy every two weeks on a Wednesday. I am your host, Hayley Chantar, an EU Bioeconomy Youth Ambassador appointed by the European Commission. 
Before we begin, I'd like to thank a moment to wish you all a very happy new year. May this year bring you all that your heart desires and some extra good vibes. Now, without further ado, let's dive into introducing our guest. Today, I am joined by Mr. Francisco Guerrero, a distinguished member of the European Parliament. He serves as a full member of the Committee on Budgets, Fisheries and Agriculture, and as an alternate member of the Committee on the Internal Market and Consumer Protection. Previously, he held the position of the first vice chairman of the Agriculture and Rural Development Commission from June 2019 to January 2022. At the moment, he is addressing a range of very important topics at the European Parliament, including animal welfare, plant-based alternatives, ocean conservation, climate change, biodiversity, and the circular economy. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. So let's kick off this interview with a question that I always love to ask our guests. So you are an MEP who's working on environmental and economic matters, and I'm sure you've come across the term bioeconomy before. So how would you define the term bioeconomy? Well, I, I would say that it's uh, an economy that is based on the um, biodiversity uh, and uh, ecological ecosystems that we have. Uh, and so uh, it is confined uh, by some uh, natural phenomena. Uh, in that sense, I would, I would also assume, I might be wrong, that it does not uh, lean to an infinite growth paradigm which is impossible, uh, at least in our current technological uh, development. And so it would really um, analyze all the impacts that our humanity has while managing resources, the other biomes, and thus having the best positive outcome uh, in this relation between uh, all these elements. That's a very good, concise way of... Um... Introducing bioeconomy, I think, kind of similar to also how the European Commission defines it. Um, so the European Commission defines it as using renewable biological resources from land and sea, like crops, forests, fish, animals and microorganisms to produce food, materials and energy. Would you change anything about this definition? I will take out the animals. <laughs> you would take out the animals. Why would you do that? Why? Because I'm vegan, and so uh, in the current uh, understanding of, of our society, uh, I don't feel that we have uh, any reason to exploit animals for our consumption. I absolutely love that, and I'm also a vegetarian, so I have a plant-based diet. And so around this time last year, we had an EU bioeconomy conference, and we had panels, uh, panel discussion, and there were these panelists who were encouraging, well, a particular panelist to be fair, who was encouraging plant-based diets. And then mm -hmm. um, there was this option where we could ask questions to the panelists. So the first question I asked was if there could be a bit of a show of hands to see how many people in the room had a plant-based diet. And the panelist who was speaking about plant-based diets did not raise his hand. And then I asked a follow-up question as to why he was not, uh, why he did not adopt a plant-based diet. And I stood up, I took the mic and I honestly, it was a bit embarrassing, but I kind of, in a way, called him a bit of a hypocrite, to be honest, because was, he was, was yeah, he was telling to, everyone, to him. 
Yes, yes. He was telling people of how they should adopt plant-based diets, but then he was not adopting a plant-based diet himself. So yeah. I appreciate that even though you speak about the and you work on these issues, including plant-based diets in the European Parliament, that you also have a plant-based diet. So that speaks volumes. Of course. I think, sorry to interrupt you, but I do think that in politics you have to be coherent or else uh, you you are not making your your job correctly so for example if i if i state that uh, I, I i don't support animal cruelty and then i go and i i invest my money in a slaughterhouse everyone would would criticize me saying okay but you that, that's completely the opposite of what you're saying but if people say oh yeah yeah, yeah you should adopt a plant-based diet but then you don't need it the majority people don't really question that so I think it's it was a really intelligent question because well if we promote something we should be uh, at least uh, trying to achieve that I don't know if it is said that he, he didn't make it due to some weird phenomenon but uh, well yeah, uh, apparently he used to be um, plant-based oh. and then moved to Africa and it's a whole thing but um, yeah so for our listeners who are not adopting a plant-based diet, um, why would you encourage them to do so? What are the benefits on our ecosystem? You mentioned the non-violence of animals. Is there anything else that are, yeah. is of benefit? Well, uh, if there's a, a website that is really interesting the, that is called ourworldindata.org. And if you check it out, you can see that it's not me who's saying the scientific studies show that uh, animal uh, agriculture is one of the most uh, destructive sectors that we have. And it's also one of the sectors that uh, most of the money, public money, is channeled into. Mm -hmm. So if we really want to have like a, a transition to a decarbonized society and we really want our public money to be used in a very rational and very uh, fair way, there's no other way of us to pushing for a plant-based diet. Obviously, in the end, everyone will have to choose whatever they want. We are not imposing anything on anyone. But if we look at the prices at, at, at some products that we have in the shelves or in the markets, they are not the real prices that internalize all the costs. They don't internalize the animal suffering. They don't internalize the humanity of uh, workers working on slaughterhouses, for example, they don't internalize the pesticide use, they don't internalize uh, the water usage, they don't internalize um, the land that is destruct, the, the, the destroyed by, by these practices. And so in the end, uh, these, these industries, also fisheries, are heavily subsidized. Uh, and what we would, or at least we should do, if we uh, really want to be serious about uh, climate change, it's to channel that public money to the transition. So, for example, if everyone would uh, would like to make the transition from animal production to plant-based production, even in, in the sea, so a fisher uh, entering a, a sector, for example, of algae, that is one of the, the, the very very interesting areas that is booming now because for example we import 90 percent 95 percent of the algae from uh, from outside the eu and so this is a huge market that could be growing could be grown here uh, in the um, in our member states we should channel that money that now is being directed to just continue the same old process of destroying uh, 
uh, ecosystems to help these fisheries, these farmers to change to more plant-based productions. And then the price of these products will also be lower and the other prices will obviously be higher. And we are not... Um, we are not making this change to affect the more poor because the more poor would benefit with a larger uh, amounts of food that would be directed at lower prices to their uh, to their uh, disposal. They really needed some information because, well, they are used to, to some types of consumptions. Uh, but if they would need it, well, uh, information should be available for them to, to know what they should achieve, how many products could, could they buy, because there's a massive variety of, of, of vegan products all over the place. And we, we are not even talking about the more processed hamburgers, sausages, those kind of things. Yeah. Uh, even if you go to a more, um, less processed uh, diets, you have massive, massive quantities of food. It's not a problem of, of access to food or, or quantity of food. On the, on the contrary, it's, it's lack of information and public policies. So since you are an alternate member of the Committee on the Internal Market and Consumer Protection, what have you done concretely to improve the plant-based market in Europe? Yes, so uh, since I'm a substitute, um, uh, I'm not uh, entirely uh, on the committee, and so I'm just dealing with some files. And uh, obviously, uh, I can also try to influence other files. And so when we talk about, for example, labeling, uh, that's, that's one of the, the key issues that we should be debating. How could we create a, a labeling system that could be efficient uh, to explain citizens what are the what is the footprint of, of the the food that they are eating we now have the some some labeling system but it's not harmonized so this has mixed competence with the agriculture and fisheries also but I would say that that is one of the most important things that we are discussing now but the commission should uh, they promised to introduce some revision of the animal welfare legislation that would also include a revision of the sustainable food system that is one of mm -hmm. the key elements for us to, to, to have access to, to good information and, and rethink the way we produce, distribute and consume goods, namely food. Uh, uh, but the, these uh, proposals were postponed. So... Um, unfortunately, we could not uh, start the, the debate on those on those key issues. That is very unfortunate to hear. And speaking of concrete issue, uh, concrete actions, and moving mm. to something a bit more juicy, so to say, uh, the nature restoration law. Mm. So this was met with some opposition, having three hundred and thirty-six votes in favor, three hundred against, and I think around thirteen abstentions. Could you explain, firstly, to our listeners what this law entails? And secondly, yeah. what this approval means for our future, whether it's negative or whether it's positive? Well, first of all, I think there's a, a political uh, perception that we are uh, heading in the wrong way. So the policies that were promoted by the majority of political parties here in the European Parliament and in the member states uh, led us to a pre-collapse of our um, of our society, human society, because the world will continue even if we destroy this. The world will continue. It will 
regenerate. So uh, this is about human survival on this on on this earth yeah. and other species, obviously. But it's it's we we could even go a bit further and say that we should be selfish <laughs> while we are talking about this because it's the existence of of, of our livelihoods, uh, our, our families, species, and ourselves. Yeah. Exactly. So um, so that was the first point that I think is really relevant, and that's the majority of, of the political groups and even the the cities don't understand this disconnection. So for us to say that we need a nature restoration law, we are implying that the path that we make until here was wrong. So that's also showed us that we cannot have the same solutions mm -hmm. to the problems that we want to, to, to cope with. And so this nature restoration law, basically it's included in the uh, um, EU uh, Green Deal, so it has several layers, and this one is more directed to biodiversity, trying to uh, make it um, like a rebound on nature, so it can help us uh, capture carbon, have more biodiversity, more animals, more insects, and so in, in a sense, trying to re rewild uh, the world. Uh, this has several layers, so it's correlated to agriculture, but it's also correlated to the oceans, it's correlated to cities. And so we have several uh, steps that we should uh, take to uh, restore nature on these environments. And so we have uh, layers and objectives that we should achieve. Member states should uh, check what they are, what, what are the, the areas that are more damaged and focused on them to um, rewild them and to try to, to make them as good as possible. And they should direct money also to do that change. Uh, one of the key elements that we that we fought uh, was the biggest uh, uh, industrial uh, agricultural lobby that made the huge pressure uh, for us to continue more or less the same way. Because if you look at the data, and again, that that uh, website is really good, ourworldindata.org. It's really good because you can see that agriculture is the biggest land grabber uh, in the European Union and it's directly connected to uh, animal farming. So uh, more or less 70% uh, of the lands are directly or indirectly correlated to animal farming or to graze animals or to produce food for the animals. And so if we rethink that we need less animals, we, live, we need more plant-based, that we need more areas to be free, to be rewild, this affects naturally the, the, the business model of this industry that want to expand as much as they can. And so in the, the same uh, for the oceans, although the oceans and the fisheries did not make such a pressure, it was most, mostly the agricultural sector. And so, uh, uh, well, we had a tight vote on the parliament. We passed yeah. out the position. Now we went to the trilogues. The trilogues is the debate between the commission, the council, that is the 27 member states, and the parliament. So each one has its position. And now we managed to finalize. Things went more or less okay. But we see there's a shift on the, um, on the perception of, of citizens also because we are struck by a lot of a lot, a lot of uh, crisis. Uh, but again, we this is the year that we broke all the records of temperature uh, ever recorded. And so this only shows that we should not be slowing down. We should be stepping up and uh, speeding up this change because it's the, it's the, the, the cascade effects of, of, of our 
um, of our actions, it's it's starting to show. And the the, the harder we and the lower uh, ambitions that we have, the the harder and it would be more difficult for us to really uh, adapt to what's coming. Yeah, and for context, if you can share, did you vote against or in favor of the nature restoration law? If you can share, of yes. course. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. And you've also mentioned that of... No, I voted, I voted in favor, obviously, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah, I just want to be clear here as well. You mentioned, and it's also statistics, so it's not just based on your opinion, um, is that it's the hottest year so far that we've experienced and we have been trying to use legislation and policies so on to try to protect our environment do you think this has been effective if not what can we do uh, it, it, it's a starting point uh, let's not forget that the eu uh, even considering the step backs is still uh, pushing the, the main political narrative is still trying to push for a transition, although in detail we are not there yet. Um, and I think what's missing is the political will that comes from uh, citizens. Is If citizens don't vote, if it's citizens don't participate, uh, well, politicians, the, the, the same old traditional politicians will be elected. Um, they will continue their traditional policies. And uh, if we continue with these high percentages of abstention in uh, in uh, the elections, uh, well, the, the 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 common traditional policies will reign, and they will continue to to dominate our our policy making, which is, uh, in my perspective, not positive because the more we postpone the changes that we need to do, the more dire will be the situation, and. We can even reach a limit where um, uh, we, we can be faced with a crisis in our democracy because citizens will be, and they are already feeling it, sometimes they don't really understand, but they are already feeling it with floods, with heats, with uh, shortages on, on some food products. They will uh, become very stressed and very uh, afraid of what's coming. Uh, and what's happening, and then the, we can have a, a real threat to our democracy, democracies because when we see uh, problems that are so big and so dire that citizens are afraid, they tend to uh, to, to be pushed to uh, easy solutions and populist movements that uh, don't really uh, have the solutions to these problems. So, again, or, or we really uh, step in and, and make the democracy more participatory, that we engage in politics, that we participate as politicians, because for me, being a politician is, is just an extension of your daily life. If you are a baker, if you are a nurse, it's the same. So it's just an extension of, of your daily life. Uh, we will have uh, serious problems in, in the upcoming uh, years. Yeah, so... In light of the European elections, which are fast approaching, and you're mentioning how citizens sometimes don't really realize the effects climate change is really having on their daily lives. How do you bridge the gap between 
demonstrating how climate change is impacting their daily lives and why they should elect you to represent them compared to, for instance, other MEPs who focus on issues that directly implement, uh, directly affect them in ways that they do understand? Uh, well, first of all, I think uh, the majority of, of MEPs like me that are in the Greens, at least um, they are not German because Germans, they have a different uh, a coverage in the media. They have difficulties to share their, their ideas because there's uh, still uh, two, two big blocks. First one is the block on the European legislation and European action through the MEPs in the media. So the media normally doesn't cover European issues, at least in my country. So this is a huge barrier. And above that barrier, also, it's completely uh, disproportionate. So it's it's unequal. Sorry, the coverage that the bigger parties have and the 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 less representative members, namely myself, that I'm the one from the Greens, the only Portuguese MEP in the Greens, have in the media, and so that creates a huge difficulty for uh, for citizens to understand. Obviously, I have my my social media, I have my website, that everything is transparent there. Everyone knows where I'm at, uh, what I'm doing, who I meet, what I spend. So it's all there. But still, there's a huge gap between these two these two phenomena. But I would say uh, I will not be running, so I will not be saying that they should vote on me. But they should be very aware on voting on green uh, policies because they are the ones who were talking about these issues 40 years ago. We were saying that if we don't really uh, look at the, our environment and create a just and fair economic model, we will have social disparities and inequalities that we see today. And we see today that a huge percentage of the wealth is not on the majority of the citizens. It's highly concentrated. We also see that um, the majority of public money is not allocated to really shift to a to a more fair and just society. We can see that from the common agriculture policy, for example, that is 28% of the EU budget and uh, it promotes unfair um, practices to farmers, to the environment, to animals, and in the end game to consumers because they are pushed to consume products that are not really healthy and uh, the best ones are very expensive and the lowest ones are really, um, low uh, in price uh, but i would say that's that's the the thing so we and if we look at housing if you look at uh, transport if you look at uh, food if you look at uh, the, the the transparency also fighting corruption at uh, at eu and national levels the greens have always 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 been on the side of this uh, very um, just very fair economic and social model that really integrates all, all these areas. And so uh, obviously we can go further, we can be more precise, we can talk about, uh, for example, the challenges that we have uh, on the, the energy sector, that we should build a single market of energy that really helps, uh, for example, Portuguese to have access to, to, to energy that is cheaper, that, but that also they can export. Uh, we could be talking about a new different model of us, even in energy, to produce, distribute, and consume energy. So instead of us continue to concentrate the production in big hubs, for example, dams or solar uh, photovoltaic uh, factories or, or fields, we should decentralize. So uh, houses, 
factories, institutions will all have their production of energy. And this would be a very decentralized way of us looking at this transition. And the European funds help a lot this type of, of vision if the member states have this vision. So sometimes we, we, we blame the, the EU for everything that is bad, but um, the majority of things could be uh, made by the member states and even go beyond what is what is uh, set uh, in some some legislation and so the, the member states normally uh, just stay put and don't do what they should be doing speaking of member states and back to bioeconomy do you think that there are certain advantages for member states to implement a bioeconomy strategy of course um, first because they will be leading in the, the economy of the 21st century um, second because it's an investment not a cost uh, and so they will be internalizing the real costs of the economic and social model and so they will be creating a platform of a transition that is fairer for everyone but i think we should uh, really start debating the post-growth paradigm or else we will always be stuck on the GDP uh, conversation and on that. And when we reach those levels, we well, we continue to promote the same economic model that is not feasible in my perspective. Um, if we want to really change to a bioeconomy uh, and a real economy that internalizes, I would not say all the costs, obviously, because that's very difficult to to do, but the majority of, of the costs that, that now are externalized. Um, and so uh, the member states have really, really good, uh, I'll give you an example. For example, Denmark, Denmark mm-hmm. uh, launched the, his program to start a 100% plant-based industry. And so they, they, they launch a program where they also use European funds, the so-called eco-schemes. Eco-schemes are a chunk of the common agricultural policy, the money that is being um, available for the member states through the EU budgets uh, to change the way they produce foods. So it's like a small amount that you can use from the common agricultural policy, but it's a good step. So this is one of the key issues, positives that came from the revision of the common agricultural policy. And so they are using that money to start the funds and to start to build an industry of 100% plant-based. So they have a strategy to this and they're also locating for uh, training. Uh, so they can also have uh, the citizens and professionals and companies to understand what, what is this uh, plant-based industry and what is this plant-based paradigm. And they are not doing it because they are expecting everyone to become vegan, obviously they are doing because they do understand that if they internalize more costs if they push for a more plant-based society they will be uh, in the front row to a new type of economy an economy that really cares about humans that strictly uh, benefits uh, animals and the society overall and ecosystems and so obviously they are uh, investing on on being uh, in the front row. But this, again, uh, takes political leadership. They are not doing this because they do believe that everyone's going to be vegan. But they do understand that there's a shift happening here in the European Union. And uh, if they are in the front row, they can be one of the top in the EU, but also exporting these products to other markets. So it's, it's really intelligent what they are doing. 
And for example, in my country, they are doing the opposite, continue the same types of production, uh, continue the same type of, of financing the model, um, agriculture and fisheries. And so in the end, they don't really have a, a perspective of change and, and being in, the, in this uh, uh, front row to, to this internalization of costs and to create the, the bioeconomy that uh, overall we both want to, to, to implement. Yeah, and as a member of the European Parliament, what specific policies or initiatives do you believe that you could implement to promote bioeconomy? Now, in the end of the mandate, very few. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was thinking about yeah. that as well. But in general, yeah, yeah. As, a, as an MEP, what power, so to say, do you have? Yeah, well, well uh, I think we should also uh, restructure the, the treaties so we the, the European Parliament co could have uh, the possibility of producing legislation. Uh, why? We can produce image, but it's own initiative report that is stating to the Commission that they should be doing this and that, and so it's not clearly like making laws and directives. Uh, and so I think that is, is a, an important step for, for us to have more, more real power. On the other side, we can condition the commission and that's why we, we, we since the beginning of the mandate, were pushing for the EU Green Deal. It's, fun, it's fundamental for us to, to really uh, start changing all our industries and all our livelihoods to uh, really encompass this bioeconomy. Um, and well, we, we are really trying as much as we can to finish all the, the, the legislative process so we can have a good basis for us to continue to, in the next mandates, to, to really dig in and, and shift as fast as we can. But again, we see a lot of uh, restrictions, we see a lot of uh, stepping back. Uh, and well, the prospects may not be that good in the next mandate uh, because we might have a more conservative um, group overall majority, uh, and this will dictate some of the key files that we are we are discussing now. Even today, we had a three-hour sessions of votes, and one of the the key files was the. The, um, the directive on uh, pesticides that was watered down. And so our position in the end was uh, lower than the proposal of the commission. And so we, we end up with the proposal uh, of reducing pesticides and, and really caring about our environment and our citizens that, uh, well, it's, it's, it doesn't match the, the needs that, that we have to change really fast and so let's see now the trilogues what they what they achieved but uh, as you see the some some changes might be happening let's hope not but in the end the citizens decide well, that's true and you're also part of the committee on budgets fisheries and agriculture how do you envision the potential for bioeconomy to transform these sectors? And do you see any significant opportunities for growth and innovation? Yeah, for me, it's it's plant-based. Uh, it's, it's an entire world that, that is not uh, even considered. You see a lot of resistance on fisheries and agriculture to really think about this new uh, approach. 
because they are very conservatives, even the more progressive, so to say, progressive groups have very conservative people uh, in the agricultural sector. Even my group has some uh, people that are not 100% in favor of plant-based, but um, well, you can imagine the, the fun that I have being a vegan. I was going to ask, have you tried to change their opinion? <laughs> Well, obviously, we are always trying to change uh, the opinions of everyone. But in the end, uh, we see that there are old people with uh, old mentalities that are not willing to, to change. So I think my path is more to question their uh, rationale uh, and show the data so they can make a fool of themselves. Not like that. <laughs> I like how you structured it. That was a very good way to end the podcast i think showing data to the ones who don't want to change their opinions and they can make a fool mm -hmm. of themselves do you have any other key takeaways to share with our listeners yes. before we wrap up yeah for example in the just to, to show you that that sometimes we really need to be courageous uh, and not being afraid of being the only one in the room saying what sometimes is really obvious once we were debating the, um, the fisheries, in the fisheries, the sentient beings, and so we should have like welfare measures uh, in aquaculture. Uh, and well, we had a report, some study that says, okay, we really need to improve the welfare uh, on these this, uh, industries because we do know that animals are sentient and they feel, so we should adapt the technology to, to kill them. Oh, because, well, uh, not everyone will become vegan, so the industries will continue in some way, so we should adapt it and really be concerned about this. And uh, um, I was talking about this and saying that, that we, we, we also have ethical considerations if we do now understand and their scientific fact that these fishes have uh, sensibility, they learn, they, they suffer. And one of the, the, the MEP said that we should not uh, put ethics uh, in, the, in the equation and we should only be talking about scientific data. And what I question is, well, but if science, science evolves and we do now perceive things that we didn't 100 years ago, ethics should also evolve. And so our perception of the world is different. This yeah. is in every, every case, right? And so it's, it's, it was kind of a more ideological uh, battle, that battle that uh, I had with, with that MEP, um, which, which was a, a woman, unfortunately, because I was expecting a more sensitive approach of her. But, uh, well, in the end, uh, I was right. She was not. And we stayed by the intellectual debates. Uh, and I think it's that don't be afraid of, of questioning the powers of... Um, rethinking the status quo even if you are just uh, a citizen that works at a shop in a close uh, if you are a politician if you are a farmer if you are a carpenter if you are whatever you are if you don't have any job it's fine don't be afraid of questioning the status quo and and, and don't uh, diminish yourself in the overall uh, world because each one of us is important in their way. And well, the, the change comes when we change ourselves. And I think that is the most relevant thing that we could do. And afterwards, well, if we are an example to others, things will come.
Well, that is very well said. I feel very inspired right now. I hope our listeners do too. <laughs> I, I might just run for elections at this point. <laughs> like youth for bioeconomy and a sustainable future. <laughs> don't, don't hold yourself. And no, I don't think so. But maybe one day we'll see. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, I thank hope you for the invitation. Thank you for tuning in to Bioeconomy Matters. I would like to express our heartfelt gratitude to BioBeo, who proudly funds this podcast and supports our mission to share with you all that Bioeconomy has to offer. Our podcasts are released bi-monthly on Wednesdays, so don't forget to subscribe and stay connected with us on social media. We are at b.y.a.eu on Instagram, and at b underscore y underscore a underscore eu on Twitter or X. And remember, bioeconomy matters and you do too.